Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today we're bringing you a conversation between Matthew Mitchell, Senior Research Fellow and Director of the Equal Liberty Initiative here at Mercatus, and Dr. Bruce Yandel, Distinguished Adjunct Fellow here at Mercatus. They discuss Bruce's latest economic situation report for September 2021, including the role of risk and uncertainty in what Bruce calls the Frankenstein economy. They talk about debt forgiveness, corporate tax and antitrust reform, the exploding demand for building materials, and much more. If you would like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Bruce Yandel. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to chat with him once again. I always look forward to these conversations. Bruce, how have you been since we last spoke? Matt, it's good to chat with you again. I, t- I tell you, it's amazing how fast these weeks flutter by. Before we know it, we are talking about another quarterly economic situation report. As we both know, there's an awful lot going on. A lot of big stones get dropped into the lake of the economy almost on a daily basis, and we get the ripple effects and then try to figure out, well, what are the implications for the future as we look at the economy? There's plenty to think about. I don't know that we have really good answers, but we have a framework for thinking about answers anyhow. That's right. Well, speaking of frameworks, I think you offer an interesting new framework in your new situation report called Frankenstein economy. What do you mean by the Frankenstein economy? Well, it's a scary term to most people. And that wonderful novel by Mary Shelley, uh, written overnight, so the story goes, is a rather interesting piece of creativity, but applied to our situation today, what I'm thinking about is major attempts by policymakers, politicians, to write rules, to intervene in the economy. We might say for all the right reasons, that is, we've got a coronavirus economy with huge difficulties associated with it, and so there's a a temptation for politicians to do something about it. Let's fix it. And so when we think about Frankenstein as a character, Dr. Frankenstein creates this being out of different parts. And we might say if he was not real satisfied with the way a hand or an arm might be working, he might have sewn in a little more muscle here and made an adjustment there. And so that's the analogy that I'm thinking about. We have an economy that is not the natural economy to the extent that it has been in the past, driven by markets and preferences of individuals buying and selling in the marketplace, always with a governmental framework. We have a situation where the framework is almost bigger than the picture. So we have a struggling economy with an attempt almost on a daily basis by policymakers to say, oops, we've got another crisis on our hands. We need to make a major adjustment here, a new regulation there, an antitrust thrust in this direction. And so there's Frankenstein stumbling forward. At least that's that's the analogy. I like this a lot. And a couple of things, you know, come to mind at the risk of potentially mixing metaphors. When you think of Frankenstein, it's unnatural. It's trying to override the natural course of things. And of course, Adam Smith uses this phrase, the system of natural liberty. You know, when I think of what you're getting at with the Frankenstein economy is this idea of 
essentially overriding the natural preferences of people or attempting to override them. So you might think, for example, of if people have a preference to save, that will end up being manifesting itself in markets and it will end up creating or prices that emerge based on that preference. The desire to borrow, the desire to save leads to the interest rate as a, you know, a price that reflects our preferences for consumption now versus consumption future. And it trades off, you know, my preferences against yours. But if you have a policy that, you know, artificially lowers the interest rate or puts a ceiling on the interest rate or attempts to encourage more consumption in the in one period over another, you're essentially trying to override the system of natural liberty. And that may have some unintended consequences down the line, right? That's right. Your comments, Matt, really lead into something that has just started happening. So it's not in the economic situation report we're talking about, but just in the last three days, out of the White House comes an urgency to do something about the price of meat. All meats, pork, chicken, beef, prices are going up. Well, why are they going up in the White House? They say it's because of our stimulus. We know why they're going up, but we don't like it. And we think that there may be some profiteering taking place. But of course, when the market rations, it rations with price. Price of pork and beef goes up. Otherwise, the meat counter would be empty. And so the producer is fetching a higher price and unavoidably, I would suggest, (laughs) earning profits. And eventually, the market always takes care of that. But instead of letting the market take care of it, there's now a new White House Council on Competition that enters the picture. So the temptation, again, is we will do something about that also. So another piece of repair work for Frankenstein, it sounds like. It may be a lack of support, theoretically, for the market process that we are observing Or it may be a combination of impatience and, of course, political pressures that come that that forces uh, the executive branch to step out and respond to crises by using command and control, which in turn will generate another market effect that may lead to another episode for some more command and control. Yeah, you know, one of the things that came to mind was President Obama in the wake of the housing crisis often went to this metaphor about how we need to rebuild on solid foundation, not on sand. And I remember thinking at the time, that is ironic because I think if you attempt to override the preferences of people, that is building on a foundation of sand. So, you know, if you think of public policies that encourage home ownership, and, you know, systematically, we had a lot of policies that did encourage homeownership and still encourage homeownership, everything from a mortgage interest deduction to zoning policy that encourages single family ownership rather than renting to tax policy and even monetary policy that was encouraging people essentially in the run up to the Great Recession to build more homes then maybe their underlying preferences would have wanted if they had faced uh, actual prices emerging from a market. There is a danger there that you create a, uh, a foundation built on sand if you try to override those preferences too much. 
There certainly is. And earlier, a few minutes ago, you were talking about interest rates and and attempts always to tinker with those. Uh, politicians typically like low interest rates. They frown on using monetary policy to stabilize things if it means increases in interest rates and the cost of money. Mm-hmm. And, and so that always leads to an undue expansion of credit for some part of the marketplace. And usually it is where credit matters most, where debt is largest for the longest term, and that's housing. And we typically get another housing bubble. We don't know it's a bubble until it pops, but we can tell that the effect is there and is ongoing. But, you know, when when we were talking a minute ago about this, this attempt at command and control, there is an example in the quarterly economic situation report where I talk about antitrust. And so for some time now, that is for months, if not years, for some, the social media business firms have been in the sights of the antitrust authorities, Department of Justice and Federal Trade Commission. But this is the first time where we have an administration that is truly lining up key figures to do something about these highly successful enterprises. And in the discussion of Facebook or Google or you name it, Amazon, we have examples of extraordinarily successful business enterprises in a relatively short period of time. And in a market system, that means the people who help to build those businesses, those people have really done well, amazingly well. And so we get antitrust authorities looking at great success. It's almost as if they are a little bit angry about the unusual success because they're talking about setting aside the traditional antitrust metrics for determining whether there is consumer harm. Uh, That is where monopoly power is exerted, price gets above cost, and uh, the consumer is hurt by it. They're almost admitting, well, the consumers have been helped by it, but we just don't like these big creatures. Yeah, we still don't like it. <laughs> That's right. And it seems like this is sort of a bipartisan affair, too. You know, it's definitely not Democrats uh, alone who are critical of s- some of these companies because Republicans often perceive them as permitting a platform where conservative ideas are sometimes not favored. So, yeah, it's, it's sort of a bipartisan assault. Another area I think that that touches on this, and it's something that you mentioned in your report, is the role of risk and uncertainty and Frank Knight's work on that. Can you explain a little bit about what that distinction is? Yes, Frank H. Knight, in fact, his dissertation, and of course, we're talking about ancient times here. Frank H. Knight turns out a dissertation in the 1930s, I believe, titled Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. And he does a wonderful job in clarifying the difference between risk and uncertainty. And that's important for the discussion we're having right now. Uh, Risk is something that over time and with data can be estimated. And so we have pretty good tables on life expectancy, and it's not real hard mathematically for an insurance company to come up with a contract that we can buy that pays off in the event of death. And so we can set aside some of the concerns that might go with not having a payment and a payoff system. The same with a fleet of automobiles and so forth. We can estimate risk and then we can adjust for it through insurance mechanisms. Uncertainty is a different animal. 
it is not frequent enough for us to have a time series with respect to certain events. And because of that, we can't estimate it. We can't predict its parameters. And so when uncertainty hits us, it may hit us in a positive way. And so we get profit. Maybe that's what's happening with the meat producers right now. They were not able to predict stimulus and actions politically that were taken to put trillions of dollars in bank accounts of consumers nationwide. They couldn't predict that. And so they're getting unusual profits. Of course, it could be a reverse situation. It may be that the social media could predict that the antitrust authorities were going to be getting them in their sites, but probably they could not estimate what that might mean in terms of the future of their business enterprises. And so then that would cause financial markets to say, well, we better take this into account. There go some losses instead of gains in the share values of these firms. And so we get the uncertainty magnified by intervention in markets by political authorities. And so if every major item that hits the economic lake creates big waves, people in the White House will say, well, we've got to do something about this. That brings uncertainty, whereas before it was risk. And so we get a more uncertain economy. Back to Frankenstein again, we know it is stumbling forward. In fact, GDP growth looks pretty good. You say, way to go, Frankenstein. Well, we really can't tell whether you're going to stumble and fall next month or not because of uncertainty. So that touches on another source of uncertainty. I mean, I think I see how policy is more likely to be in that realm of uncertainty rather than risk. Could another source of uncertainty just be in, be innovation, creative destruction, you know, people coming up with new and different ways to do things? Who could have foreseen, you know, I think of my uncle had the unfortunate job of being a typewriter repairman in the 19, early 1980s. So he was struck by this shock of new technology, a personal computer that, you know, it even caught people in the computing world by surprise. Many of, what was it, the, the quote from the IBM executive who said that, there's a market for a personal computer of about one, you know, maybe, maybe we'll sell one in the entire, <laughs> the entire world. Right. How does that play into it? You know, those private sources of. It, it's a, it's an interesting connection that is, that is in a sense, I was referring to uncertainty generated by political action, but there is uncertainty generated by market action. And uh, that creative destruction characteristic of capitalism where, generally speaking, anybody who is legal and has an idea can try out that idea in the marketplace. And many times those ideas are disruptive, very disruptive to existing players. And so by all means, let's don't let these automobiles on the highway, they'll kill people, particularly if you're in the business of creating carriages and running stables for horses. The inventiveness, innovation, the marvelous, marvelous characteristic of any free people, I would say, where property rights are protected, venturing forth with another way of doing something, give me a chance. I might succeed. I might fail. Uh, if I succeed, you better look out, Buster. If I'm talking about an electronic device that produces words and you're, and you're over there with your fingers on the home keys, uh, 
typing away, you may be a relic of the past. Look for your typewriter in a museum one of these days. So, so it is a, another dimension of uncertainty created by the market process itself. People who are successful in our terminology, uh, we say they are earning rents. That is, they're making more than necessary to keep them in their current occupations. And isn't it wonderful? We all want rents, but those who are earning rents want to hold on to them. And so when they see this innovation coming, then I surely would like to figure out a way to get a little bit of help here, maybe from the government. Maybe uh, let's get at our trust looking a little harder at some of these enterprises that are so disruptive. Then we get a combination of the creative destruction forces of the marketplace and political uncertainty teaming together. Yeah. And, you know, where those two two combine is when you get an entrepreneur who doesn't want to have to face uncertainty and would prefer that the government preemptively outlaw the activities of his competitors. And, you know, I'm, I'm Think a little bit about, you know, the broad sweep of history. Asimago and Robinson's book, Why Nations Fail, they talk about Empress Maria Theresa from the famous Habsburg rulers in the 18th century. And evidently one of her favorite phrases was, leave everything as it is. So, you know, people, when they invented uh, the idea of, you know, a steam engine, she essentially ensured that there were regulations that kept it from coming through the empire because she wanted to protect the incumbent producers. And this had you know, significant consequences in terms of the economic development of, of the empire, really put them at a long-term disadvantage. And you, know, you see the same kind of things today. You know, taxi drivers wanted to have local regulators preemptively forestall their competitors in Uber and Lyft because let's just leave everything as it is. It's much easier to deal with risk than it is to deal with uncertainty of a totally new product or service that could, you know, totally throw us off. Yes. You know, we have, we had a little mixture of that recently. So just a few weeks ago, when there was a really big press conference, Rose Garden ceremony held under the auspices of the White House, obviously, celebrating electric vehicles, making announcement that the U.S. is going to be one of the global leaders in the production of electrical vehicles. And there will be an important role for government to play, if not in subsidizing the manufacturer and making it easier for consumers to buy them, maybe building more charging stations, all of that. But very pointedly, the White House did not invite to that ceremony anyone from Tesla, uh, the world's largest producer (laughs) of electric automobiles, wasn't invited. And they made it a point, and it's because it's not unionized. The only manufacturers who were invited to the big picnic were those who have an organized labor force. And so BMW wasn't there. Mercedes wasn't there. On and on, Nissan wasn't there. And the point was made very openly and certainly not apologetically that uh, part of what we're doing is to maintain good union jobs in our economy with some direction being given by government. With a larger subsidy being proposed for automobiles produced by union labor, a larger subsidy to consumers, than for automobiles produced by non-union 
labor. And so we get a really interesting mix of, of things. But the thing that was striking to me is that it was completely open. It wasn't uh, the kind of conversation that you would have behind your hand so that perhaps no one would really notice. There was a certain kind of pride. Yes, organized labor helped us get elected and we're going to do our part. Yeah, it reminds me of the phrase with government shekels come government shackles. And this helps explain the empirical reality that over the long run, privileged firms and industries actually don't tend to outperform other parts of the economy. Gordon Tullock had some explanations for that. You know, one of them is that in, he has got a great paper called The Transitional Gains Trap, in which he argues that, you know, one of the reasons why they don't outperform is that often you need some sort of an asset that buy, that that's, gives you a ticket into, into the privilege. And sometimes if you have to buy that asset, the value of the privilege is capitalized in, into it and it becomes costly to get that ticket. So for example, imagine, uh, I'll just give two examples. He, he gave the one of taxi medallions that the way to get into the market, the protected market was to obtain this little piece of metal that says that you are certified as one of, one of the only legal operators in this market. Well, because that entitles you to essentially a monopoly position, it gets costly to buy that medallion. And they, they were trading up at, you know, near a million dollars or over a million dollars right up until Uber broke in into the market through creative destruction. To take another example, land is what's needed to entitle you to get access to not just land, but, you know, uh, farmland is what's necessary to get you access to farm subsidies. And so the, sure enough, even though we think we're helping farmers, the value of the farm subsidy is capitalized into the price of the land. So if you want access to that that subsidy, first you got to get the land and you got to pay out the wazoo to get the land. And so the privileged industry is no better off in the long run. Well, the shekels and shackles explanation offers one other sort of mechanism by which this happens, which is if you want access to the privilege, you want access to the subsidy, you may have to undergo some expensive procedures that we might find that that we the politicians who are handing out the privilege you know that that we find desirable and so in the long run it may be this may be, help explain why firms that are privileged tend not to outperform the rest of the economy yeah you know your description there caused a flash through my mind of the at the football game where you can't see real well and so you stand up to get a better view and the person in front of you stands up to get a better view. And after a while, everybody in the stadium is standing up to get a better view, but no one is getting a better view. We're just all standing, unless you happen to be taller than average, uh, maybe you're getting a better view, but you are getting tired <laughs> sooner. You just sort of wish that someone over the loudspeaker would say, would everyone please sit down and we'll start this process over again. Uh, so in a way, you know, that's that rent-seeking process. If you get there early and you're the first one to stand up, you may get to see a little bit more than, than the other folks. But it does get capitalized in. You're right. Excellent. Well, uh, we're running up against our time here. Are there any other other uh, final parting comments that you'd, you'd like our listeners to hear before we uh, sign off? I think the uh, comment that I might like to close off with. First off, thanks, Matt. Fun talking with you uh, and for the, having the opportunity to do so. But to uh, pause for a moment and 
marvel at what market economies can do, even when covered with a lot of regulatory concrete and intervention. Amazing things still still take place. And there will always be winners and losers, and the losers would just love to postpone the pain a little bit longer. But if we can keep the concrete thin, then we can enjoy these marvelous benefits. I just bought a light bulb yesterday, a 60-watt light bulb, light-emitting diode. I paid a dollar for it. I looked on the box. This light bulb will last 20 years. I'm replacing, as everybody tends to, as they burn out the old incandescence. So it's just another marvel of what the market has delivered to us, even light bulbs. Fun talking with you. Oh, it's great talking with you. A lot of light bulbs go off whenever uh, I, I read your, your stuff. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to, today to share some of your wisdom with us. See you now. Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information. Thank you.